This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 283rd episode of Awards Channel, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast, which is presented today by Bravo's Dirty John, Below Deck, Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen, Top Chef, and Project Runway, for your Emmy consideration. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of Broadway's most popular and consistently strong actresses. She's a four-time Tony nominee, first in 2005 for the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, then in 2012 for Peter and the Starcatcher, then in 2014 for The Glass Menagerie, and now this year for her rave-reviewed portrayal of Scout Finch in Aaron Sorkin's blockbuster version of To Kill a Mockingbird, the frontrunner for the Best Featured Actress in a Play Tony, Celia Keenan-Bolger. Over the course of our conversation at the West in New York at Times Square, the 41-year-old and I discussed the devastating blow at the outset of her career of being relieved of the leading role in the musical The Light in the Piazza just before it went to Broadway, how she rebounded by making her Broadway debut in and receiving her first Tony nom for the 25th annual of Putnam County Spelling Bee, which was the first of several parts connecting right through To Kill a Mockingbird in which she has played a child, how she broke out of musicals and into plays such as The Glass Menagerie, The Cherry Orchard, and Now to Kill a Mockingbird, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Celia, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you with us. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what do your folks do for a living? Oh, I like that <laughs> so much. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. My mother was a public school teacher, and my dad is an urban planner. And just as this will come up later on, you do have a few younger siblings as I well. I do, yes. They both grew up in Detroit as well and now both live in New York City, which is so great. And my brother is a, as an actor, writer, director, renaissance man. My sister is a social activist and has her own theater company. Yes. Well, so... What, for you guys in Detroit, would have been the first exposure, or let's start specifically with you, with, you know, first exposure to performing arts? I think the f first show I saw was at a children's theater in one of the suburbs of Detroit. I saw The Sound of Music when yeah. I was like five and was super into it. But my parents were really good about taking us, you know, to see theater and to the symphony. So that we, we definitely had a, a good amount of culture. And then in terms of getting into performing yourself, was it because of that thing at five that by six, I guess you're already <laughs> a lead of a show or something? I mean, I think I definitely like saw that show and was like, I want to do that. Yeah. And my parents were like, well, OK. <laughs> and so like the next year I was like some kind of clown in Annie Get Your Gun doing somersaults across the stage. And I stayed at that children's theater I don't know, probably for like the next five years just doing little shows. Is this the one that, I, I couldn't believe it, but I read your 
in one with Sudden Foster? What oh, a yeah. small world. That is, isn't that a crazy small world? This, that was a different one. That okay. was actually a luncheon theater <laughs> where we would serve hot dogs and salads before the show to the audience, and then we would go and put our costumes on and do the show. This is when you were still a kid? So what This was summers? when we were like, I was in middle school. Sutton yeah. was a little bit older. It was during the year. We would do it on the weekends. There was like a Saturday cast and a Sunday cast. Oh, my God. And the director's philosophy was like, if you're going to be, if you're going to try to be a professional actor, it will be helpful if you also know how to wait <laughs> tables. So, so it seems like for the earliest years, even just, within school time through high school, most of what you were gravitating towards or or were being offered the opportunity to do were musicals. Yeah. So what what I read, a, and this, if it's true, it's like the craziest full circle thing, but when you were first having to go out for a play, what were you encouraged to do as a I, monologue? So, <laughs> well, of course, when you're like a kid... You don't even know what a monologue is. And there was a repertory theater in downtown Detroit that was part of Wayne State University, and they were doing The Grapes of Wrath. Mm -hmm. And there are two kids in The Grapes of Wrath, and they said, you know, just bring a monologue. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. And my mother was like, I also don't really – I mean, I know what a monologue is, but I don't know what that looks like for a kid. And she was like, you know what you could do is you could cut a section of scouts from To Kill a Mockingbird. There, there's that scene – at the jail when she talks down Mr. Cunningham. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's like a kid. And I already know the material. I love that book. she had been reading it to you, and it, was, it meant a yes, lot to her. Yes, it did. That book was like a really important book in our house. Yeah. And she had read it to me like way before that when I yeah. couldn't really read a chapter book. But yeah. then I had read it again in school, and I had seen the movie. And, you know, Scout Finch is like a pretty iconic literary heroine. Yes. And so that that was like one of the first... That, I think that was the first monologue I ever did. That's unbelievable. So well, crazy. So now you go off to an arts high school in mm -hmm. inner city Detroit. What were the most important takeaways from your time there? I read you were saying demographically it was an interesting experience because... You were the minority. Yeah, I think my parents were so, I don't know if it's just like where we are culturally right now. Mm -hmm. And like, I weirdly have been like listening to a lot of podcasts about reparations and about housing and that my parents like decided to raise their kids in the inner city of Detroit and not sort of participate in the white flight of it all. Mm -hmm. And then, and so that most of my neighbors were black families. Mm -hmm. And then in school, because Detroit really was a predominantly black city that from kindergarten to eighth grade, there were like, you know, a few white kids. And then in high school, I think there were just two of us. Wow. And so that experience and the truth is, I'm not sure that my parents were even trying to do something specific there, but that they felt strong ties to the city mm -hmm. and and felt like they really wanted to raise us in an urban environment. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I think it was a really, in some ways, I definitely felt like an outsider, as one does as a minority. But I also think what I say now is, like, I feel like you could put me in almost any room and I would figure out how to manage myself. Yes. Like, that, that that was a really, really helpful way to experience those four years. And I also think, as an actor, because you're constantly being faced with characters that you sometimes don't understand or that you don't identify with, that being on the outside is is a helpful yeah. way to go through life for a little bit, particularly if you're trying to access a character that you don't totally 
that doesn't resonate. Right. So how, if, if, the, if I have the chronology right, how is it that while you were still in this high school, you also, you and your siblings also come to have an agent? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's so, like my parents were so supportive and they really weren't, you know, because of their jobs, I think they were, they didn't have any skin in the game about whether or not we were successful, but there was this New York agent who came to Michigan and hosted like a seminar on like keeping your kids healthy in the performing arts. And my mom was like, that seems like a good thing to go to. <laughs> and then at the end of the seminar, she was like, also, I'm an agent in New York and I would like to represent your kids. And, and I was had like, she seen you guys perform? No. So it was just like yeah, two kids. That she was like, yeah, it seems like <laughs> suspect now looking back on it. But my parents, I think, were like, eh, you know, we'll see. And and so they were like, okay, we're interested. And very quickly she was like, I have auditions for like Beauty and the Beast and Les Miserables and yep. Ragtime. And for me, some, you know, Manhattan Theater Club play called Kinder Transport. Yes. And I also had never, I had done The Grapes of Wrath. That was the only play prior to that. And, and I guess I was a no-neck monster and cat on a hot tin roof. But these were like very small. School plays. Yes. And they, and they were, they weren't, I just wasn't as interested in the plays as I was in the musicals. But now you get your equity card and our how how did it work that so, the way i ha understand it you did for at least a short period come and understudy this part in kinder transport at the manhattan theater club in new york so how is yeah. that working when you're still in school in detroit yeah well i went to the professional performing arts school in new york right. my mom's twin sister lived in new york city mm -hmm. so she was a touchstone here right. i stayed with like random friends this is when you're 15 years old and like for how long a period? Yes, I think it was only like six months, five okay. months. But it was really, you know, Dana Ivey was yeah. in it. And she, in a strange way, because it, I also was like so obsessed with Stephen Sondheim in high school. <laughs> like I think she was some sort of gateway drug for me where I was like, you can do plays and musicals. That like I only really knew her as Yvonne in Sunday in the Park with George. <laughs> and here she was being this extraordinary actress in this play and I watched that play over and over and over again and also like the other understudies in that play there was a woman Nell Balaban who had also done musicals and plays and she was really good at being like you should read some Chekhov you should read some Ibsen or some Tennessee Williams and she was just like a a helpful teacher and also she was like also do you know like this Joni Mitchell album like it did that trip to New York opened up something in me that I think was like this is the place where I want to live for the rest of my life well first you have to go back to Detroit mm -hmm. and figure out college and the <laughs> weird thing to me was that apparently like the dream was Carnegie Mellon it was Cincinnati Conservatory of Music oh it was yes okay so, so it was like but it was it was like CCM, Carnegie Mellon, NYU, those were like the, and Michigan, okay. were like the top. I mean, there weren't that many musical theater programs when I was. And that was, it was had to be musical theater. Yeah. But like, it sounds like Michigan initially was not the top of the New, list. Not and at you're all. getting a scholarship to at least one of the ones that yes. were. So why do you go to Michigan? I went and visited my top choice that I got into for mm -hmm. the weekend. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. There was like something in my 17-year-old bones that was like, this is not the perfect fit for you. And I think I really, I just didn't want to go to college where I grew up. And it wasn't even like we went to Ann Arbor all the time. It just felt like college was a thing that you went away for. Right. And so I got into Michigan. 
and was like not that psyched about it and went and visited similarly for a weekend and I was like these are my people and it just so happened that my brother was cast in Beauty and the Beast that year so my family moved to New York City so I was like oh look at me I don't I don't like I did get to go away for yeah, college yeah. because they're, they're now <laughs> far away and now I get to go for like Christmas I get to go to New York City which seems like very cool yes. and and going to Michigan is like in my adult life I would say one of the top 3 good decisions that I made. Well, it sounds like part of the decision, a factor in the decision, I don't know if this has been overstated in coverage, but who'd you meet when you went to visit? I stayed at Gavin Creel's apartment. <laughs> How did that I was, happen? That I think I had met him because he was doing a show in Gross Point, which was the suburb close to Detroit, for like a summer theater show. And I met him and he was like, you know, if you ever come and visit, like we live in this house with all of these other people. And I think one of the women that I went and that was also like in the incoming freshman class, she was also friends with one of Gavin's roommates. So they were like, yeah, like sleep on the floor, come hang out. And it just, it really felt like a place that was both where everybody, as the way that I was, was obsessed with musical theater, but that the spirit of the place felt very supportive and very sort of collaborative and fun in a way that I responded to. And we should just say, if anyone's not been able to familiarize themselves yet with Gavin Creel, Tony winner for, I think, Hello, Dolly, yes. and probably nominated for several others. But So you go off to the University of Michigan, you're part of this musical theater performance program. How valuable was that and how also was your time there impacted by the fact that it, it sounds like something very sad happened while you were there which is that you lost your mom yeah it was I think that's also so crazy though like that it was a place that could support like I could never have known that when I was 17 right. years old that I was like you're gonna like you're gonna choose a place where your mom is gonna get really sick with cancer and that you're gonna like need a lot of people to take care of you and that I somehow intuitively like understood that in the decision. And it really, I think that whole department, and it has a lot to do with Brent Wagner, who ran the department when I was there, that his whole, he had such rigor for the work and for an appreciation of the art form mm -hmm. of musical theater that I think, you know, I, I'm not sure that I necessarily came in with, but that he also was so clear about the kind of humans he was trying to put out into this profession mm -hmm. and how and realistically how hard what it is that we do mm -hmm. can be mm -hmm. and how important it is to take care of one another inside of that. And I just felt like I really was able to absorb that and that his I think philosophy was like it's going to be competitive. It's going to be very, very hard. Mm -hmm. So that's a given. What can you do inside of that to make things easier? Right. And so when my mom got sick, it really was. And she didn't die until after I graduated from okay. college. But she was very sick for my sophomore, junior, and senior year. And that was, you know, that's like an intense thing to go through in college when you're also just like, oh, so I'm obsessed with Kiss of the Spider Woman right, or, you know, right. whatever nonsense I was <laughs> interested in. But that it really was a place that was able to be a container for all of those feelings. Yeah. So in terms of what you're saying, Brent taught you that being able to just emotionally handle the competitiveness of it all and, and the and the highs and lows of a career, 
seems like pretty quickly you had to deal with that yeah. because, I mean, it started out, I, I guess, with some regional theater in 2002 and going into 2003. Correct me if any of this is wrong, but your cast is Clara, the brain-damaged young woman at the center of the musical Light in the Piazza. This is before it comes to Broadway. It's in Seattle and Chicago. Bartlett Cher is the director who we should know is now also directing To Kill Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. But at that point, having played the part in Seattle and Chicago, I guess I, this may be a detail that is, I don't know if it's correct, seem, you end up in a Subaru and having a tough conversation. <laughs> yes. I mean, that is sort of, that's like pretty, that's pretty accurate. Like what happened? So I think always from the beginning, I think there is a, when I auditioned for the show, it was going to the Sundance Theater Lab and Adam Gettle couldn't make my very first audition to do the lab. So I auditioned for Craig Lucas, who wrote the book. Mm-hmm. And I think immediately Craig was like, you're amazing, you're wonderful. Ted Sperling sang with me, and they were like, it's good to go. But I wonder <laughs> to this day if Adam Gettle had been in the room, he would have been like, that's not our person. And I think in his heart, he always wanted somebody who had a different voice than what I had. and. Kelly O'Hara, who ended up playing the role on Broadway beautifully, was playing Franca in this production. And I think as he was writing for her, I think there just was probably a part of him that was like, this is the voice that I always heard this character have. And so, you know, it's announced that it's moving to Broadway. I am asked to come in an audition for it, having done now like three, the Sundance Original Lab and then two productions out of town. And I think I was still sort of optimistic. I was like, I guess I'll just, I don't know. I, yeah, I was like, I, I don't know what else I can show them, but I'll come in an audition again. And then Bart cast me in a production of Our Town in Seattle. And as that was happening, he was like, look, that was where the Subaru came in. He was like, look, it's not going to happen. Like, you're not going to move to Broadway with the show. And I just remember thinking, like, what's going to happen to me? Because... I was like the person that was, and and also the musical, I felt like The Light in the Piazza was like one of the most beautiful things I was ever going to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And that remains the truth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to be that girl that was fired from The Light in the Piazza. Like, I don't know how I'm going to recover from this. Did you see it as being fired or just that they, I mean, because it's, I mean, one one other theory I have come across is that there was the question of what age emotionally is this character stunted at Mm -hmm. because of this being kicked in the head by the horse (laughs) is it 10 or is it 12 yeah and if it's 10 you know even just physically is a different thing than Mm -hmm. if it's 12 yeah do you think that could have i do and i think because i did it the same way for so long it was hard to sort of break out of what or that nobody even really knew inside of my performance, like yeah. if we could push it further, but that it was like, that I think that it's true. I think there were a lot of different parts of it that felt like it will be better if it goes in this direction. And Bart to this day, he's like, you weren't fired. And I'm like, well, that's easy for yeah, you to say. Yeah. But I think the truth is, you know, we in the business, they say like, it's not going to go any further. <laughs> and I feel like that was the the language that was used around it. But it was... It was pretty devastating. It was really, really, really hard. I think it was also really hard because I had bec- because I had worked out of town with all of right. these people. I had become close with them, and it felt a little bit like 
I think maybe there was a part of me that was like, well, we're all so tight. Like, they, will they just drop me? <laughs> the answer is yes. Yeah. That, like, and in, in some ways, it was a really good lesson for me to have that early on in my career because I was like, oh, okay, this is what it's gonna be. Like, are you up for this? Because if you're not, there's gonna be more of it. Yeah. And I think very, very subconsciously, I was like, well, I'm not gonna quit. No. Like, of course I wanna keep doing this. Right. So I have to figure out like how to deal with what just happened and like, or or not, or, you know, just keep on keeping on. Right. And, and hopefully not let it, you know, define me. Well, I think it's a testament to you that not not that any like well take Kelly for instance I know you guys are I believe quite close yes and it wasn't like she went after your part no. but I mean it's still I'm quite the opposite yeah. I mean she there is like a a whole story where she like came where they were like coming and singing and she like gave a whole speech where she was like I don't want to do this and they were like well there's no other choice right. you have to do this Celia is not going to do it so like do it I mean she really stood up for me right. along the way. And then we had a long correspondence as it was all going down. Like yeah. it really, she is, and the truth is, I can't do what Kelly O'Hara can do. Like when I saw her in it, I was like, oh my God, she is spectacular. And we have different skills. Right, and then to be now working with Bart, do you ever imagine <laughs> that you would be able to get past that? It's funny, I think I always believed we would work together again. I just didn't know when, it, and it felt like a long time. It's been a long time since that all yes. went down. And, you know, as he's, like, having success after success, I was, like, I'm sure excited about that <laughs> experience that we're going to have yeah. at some point. Here we are 16 years later. Yeah, but you know what? It was, I can say, like, it was really, really worth the wait. Yeah. Well, the thing that, fortunately, it seems like pretty quickly came together for you after that blow with Light in the Piazza is, of course— what was your Broadway debut instead of that, what instead was 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, 2005. Maybe you can just share how that entered the picture and, and also what you remember of the night of the Broadway debut. I'm always curious what that what people remember of the first night. Yeah, that show was like a tiny little gift that just like took care of me during that whole experience because I, my friend Jesse Tyler Ferguson, who I had done a little Michael John LaCusa musical with at Second Stage in like 2002, mm -hmm. I think, was like, I'm doing this musical with Bill Finn about a spelling bee and it's really good. And I actually think there's like a character in it who they're trying to expand her singing, and I think you would be kind of good for the part. And I was like, well, that sounds great, but I'm actually already doing the light in the piazza. So, <laughs> and I think, you know, the story that I always have to tell around Spelling Bee is that Rebecca Feldman, who was the creator of the entire 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee musical, played my character. So she was the person that, like, developed the entire thing and played my part mm -hmm. and then was replaced by me when it moved off Broadway. And I, even before that, we did it at Barrington mm -hmm. Stage. And I remember thinking, because that was also after I had been replaced yes. in Light in the Piazza, and that I couldn't have like the full conversation with her. We have like later had it, but that going into it, I was like, I think, I know you think I don't know what you're going through, but I do understand how horrible this is. Because and how someone hard it had is. told her that she could not go on? Yeah, that she would, yeah, that she was, 
not going to continue and that she was going to like have to watch somebody else do this thing that she had created. Wow. So yeah, you really could empathize. Yes. Um, And so for a year and a half, you played this sweet, but sad (laughs) schoolgirl and wound up in the course of that with your first Tony nomination for your first show. Did you feel like you could breathe a little bit like you're when you get it? I mean, what is the significance of a Tony nomination at that point? Like the first one, do you feel like, all right, um, I'm here, I'm going to work, I can, you know, take a breath. Yeah, I think, well, also the craziness that it was in the same season as The Light in the Piazza, I think really made me feel like however crazy this last year has been, like something you are like being taken care of. And like the Tony nomination was so unexpected. I didn't wake up for it. I didn't even, it was not even on my radar that that was something that could happen. So the fact that it did, I think more than anything, just like what I, circling back to what I said before, that was like, you just have to keep on keeping on, like just keep putting one foot in front of the other because you love the work and now you're being recognized for it. So it was really, and also because that musical was so scrappy. I mean, we started doing it in like a lunchroom (laughs) at Barrington Stage Company. And then I think we got like 10 Tony nominations or something like that. So it was really, it just felt like, this tiny little engine that could in a season that was packed with so many great shows. So yeah, you left that show in 2006 in the, in the fall and before the end of the year, we're in Les Mis, Yes. which sounds like it had always been, I think you'd said you'd even done a production maybe when you were in school or you'd always I wanted auditioned to for yeah. little Cosette in the national because it was like at a time when the, in the national tour they would just use different kids depending on the city where right. they were and I was obsessed with Les Miserables and yep. particularly obsessed with Eponine like every nine-year-old girl yes is. and so this is who you end up playing and I thought, you know, geez, you can't get a, a break in terms of the emotional roller coaster because <laughs> what was the source of inspiration for this character? <laughs> Well, you know, like a really terrible breakup. Yeah, so there you go. (laughs) Easy enough. Yeah. Transfer that on. And Drama Desk Award nomination for that one. So what I thought was pretty interesting is that here, you know, as you're starting to make a a name for yourself in the community, people were seeing you, understandably, I guess, because these were the first two parts, as musical theater performer Celia. And instead, you had come up doing both musicals and plays and I think there was a desire probably it seems like to do both and I guess the opportunity to break out of the musical box really came while you were performing in Saved off mm-hmm. Broadway it's yeah. 2008 Playwright Horizons and what happened that sort of led to the my friend Trip Coleman, who wasn't really a friend at the time, but yep. I knew him and I, I had always really liked him. He was good friends with Michael Friedman, who wrote Saved. And he was like, have you ever been in a play? And I was like, no, but I really want to be. And at that time, I just couldn't get, I really couldn't even get an audition for a play. Like I maybe a couple, but nothing. What that, would you hear? What would the feedback be? That I would say like, could I get seen for this? And they were like, yeah, it's either already cast or they're not really seeing your type or something. And I was like, your type meaning <laughs> right, what? Right, right. I remember like I, I got to audition for The Crucible that Laura Linney did. Mm-hmm. That was like one thing. Right. But Trip was like, you should be in a play. And I was like, well, thanks, Trip. Do you want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> but like pretty quickly after that, he called me in to audition for this incredible, wild 
play by Leslie Headland called Bachelorette. Mm -hmm. And it was a character that had never in all of the time that I had been in this business, like nothing had ever come close to this person where I was like, oh my God, this is like, I don't even think she exists in a musical. Like she was so outside of the world that I had been living in. And I was- Like a drug addicted party girl. Yes, <laughs> this was a exactly. long stretch from exactly. Eponine. <laughs> and, like, and like mean, right, like right, not particularly right. Sweet. Um, kind. Right, yeah. right, right. And so- is it correct that Trip? it's not only Bachelorette, but then a year later, also a small fire? Yes, which was, that was honestly, I feel like, I think Trip and I have collaborated on like almost six projects together. Wow. And he was so, and this is the truth about Trip with so many young actors that like, I feel like he sniffs them out before anybody knows. And then people end up having these like wonderful careers. Yeah. But he was he was also one of the first directors that I was able to like have a body of work with where like you would go into the rehearsal process and like the vocabulary was all like there was none of the like, do I trust this person? Right. Does this Shorthand. person know what they're doing? Yeah. yeah, that that was like a very new and exciting experience yeah. to have with a collaborator. Was the first time that you were professionally able to do Sondheim, Marley? No, I actually got to do Sweeney Todd at the Kennedy Center before the light in the piazza. So that was your first thing, period. Yes. That was like, yeah. I did a new musical called Summer of 42. That was my first job oh, yeah, out of yeah. the gate. And then I did that Michael John LaCusa musical. And then I did Sweeney Todd at the Kennedy Center. And now in 2012, Merrily We Roll Along. And then that same year is where, and people may start to see a common thread of a few things here, but a 13-year-old <laughs> daughter of an adventurous nobleman in Peter and the Starcatcher. This also started in 2012, basically the story of how an orphan became Peter Pan. Uh -huh. And you have said, quote, that show was no doubt the most fun I've ever had working on Broadway, close quote. So how did it come about and why was that so fun? Oh, my gosh. That show, for so many reasons, I think the nature of what it was, which was both Alex Timbers and Roger Reese having this idea about, I guess it's a term like rough theater where it's basically the actors are responsible for all of the storytelling that the set and the visuals are all part of a larger thing, which is is made by actors. And so we did it initially. I auditioned for it and got cast for an out-of-town production in La Jolla, which was as like grueling and fun as a time as I have had. And then we got to do it again at New York Theatre Workshop with a number of the same people. So by the time... We got to Broadway. I had like worked out of town with these guys who, by the time we made it to Broadway, I was like, these are like some of my closest friends in my life that we're, I'm now getting to perform with eight times a week. And I just think the sort of physicality and the fun of that group, like I still, like right now, I, I've talked about this a little bit. I learned so much watching Christian Borel in that production of of the amount of ideas. I'd never seen an actor bring so many ideas to the table and to be so fearless in both his comedy and in failing. Like he would try things on stage that were just like, would not <laughs> get any response. And he was like, onward. Whatever, yeah. And I was like, wow, someday. Yeah. I hope I'm that brave. <laughs> but it was, a, it was an ensemble show, I think in the truest sense that we were all, the show could not exist without one of us. And that was 29 number two. Yeah. And in the midst of it, I guess, is when you first heard about an audition opportunity for Glass Menagerie, which yeah. obviously couldn't be much more different. <laughs> and 
in that case, you've spoken in other interviews, like there there was sort of an aversion to revivals maybe prior to that. And this was not a show that you were especially enamored with growing up. Yeah. So was it just who you would be playing Laura opposite or what was, I mean, even in the audition process, I think they'd already cast your gentleman caller. Right? Yeah. And I think Cherry Jones certainly was, it was honestly John Tiffany yeah. because I had seen Blackwatch. I was like, I'll go in for anything for him just to be in the same room. Right. And also rereading Glass Menagerie, I remember saying to my husband, John, I was like, John, The Glass Menagerie is a beautiful play. And he was like, uh, yeah, it <laughs> is. Discovery. Somehow, like in right. high school, it was just lost on me. Like right. I couldn't find my way in. And I also think part of saying that I didn't want to do revivals, like it's easy for me to say this now, but I think a, a part of that was fear, that it was like these plays like Glass Menagerie that people hold in a very special place that I was like, I don't want to be responsible for screwing that Or just that to up. be compared to so many yes. other people who have done it. Exactly. Yeah. First of all, we should note that this also, I guess, in a way that's similar to Kill Mockingbird, um, this idea of the memory play, mm -hmm. right? There aren't that many of them that are, you, you know, you say memory play, it immediately comes to mind, but I think those are. And then here, your, your sort of big, showcases this 30-minute scene with the gentleman caller played by Brian J. Smith, which got just, like, raves. People were uh, – did you and he personally hit it off, or what was it just – I mean, I guess great acting. You don't have to have hit it off with the other actor, but but what – you know, take us into that 30-minute scene that you shared. I think mostly it's John Tiffany, and I think Brian J. Smith is, like, the most – I luckily, we did, like, more than hit it off. I really – I love him and care about him so much. And I think it's funny because he's so disarmingly handsome that you're <laughs> like, oh, we know who this guy is. Like, <laughs> he showed up to rehearsal and I was like, oh, sure. Yeah. And then, like, what he, is what the stuff that he is actually made of is so his I feel like his insides are so not necessarily reflective of his outsides. And in a strange way that the gentleman caller is is similar mm -hmm. in that respect and that John Tiffany saw that and really asked him to sort of go towards that in himself. But there was something in that scene. It's it's probably the best written scene that I've ever gotten to act in. And the way that it was both staged and the way that we were able to go through it, both as actors and as just the characters inside of it, I think we all were very much on the same page, even though we didn't have the exact same take mm -hmm. on what the scene was, but that we felt similarly about what everyone was going through. And it just, I can't remember looking forward to something as much as I would look forward to doing that scene wow. every night. Like it really, even on the days, because when you're in a long run, you obviously have nights where you're like, oh, where will it come <laughs> from? That I would start and I was like, oh, this scene just has your back like it will just take care of you as mm -hmm. you go through it and i think it's interesting that you know it seems like pretty immediately you went right into another revival of a classic right after that i mean right this is cherry orchard yeah, yeah. that i there was a tiny break because i had a baby oh, between well, those two yes thing, yes <laughs> so i did the cherry orchard i think when william was like mm, 16 months old okay and that was again like Chekhov, where i was like oh god i have no business doing any of this, but it was, I, Stephen Karam did the adaptation, which I was very, very 
interested in. And again, it just felt like something so outside of anything I had done before. And The Cherry Orchard is a very, very hard play. Dense, and right? Yes. And, and a mystery to me still. Like, it's one that I'm like, I would like to do that one again because I think it's not a coincidence that, like, at the Moscow Arts Theater, they all worked together all the time and would work on things for, like, six months. Yeah. And I was like, that's how long that material requires. Yeah. Okay, so this brings us to the featured attraction. <laughs> Scout, we all know from Harper Lee's novel and then, of course, the the Robert Mulligan movie in 1962. And everybody everybody knows To Kill a Mockingbird, we, we thought. And now Aaron Sorkin comes in and has his own take on this. And I guess I was amused by the way this began from what I read where it's like you were – told don't even get your hopes up right <laughs> yes like my agent the email i have to like go back and see the exact wording but she was like yeah. i have sort of a weird request <laughs> for you but uh you know they're doing this adaptation and they're doing the very first read through of it so that aaron can work on the script and they feel because they're not giving out copies of the script that to cold read it it's too much of a burden to put on an eight-year-old to navigate Aaron Sorkin's text. So would you do them the favor and just come in and read it for the day? Or for it was like a two-day reading. Mm -hmm. And of had course, you ever had anything to do with Aaron Sorkin before? No. And yeah. that was the honestly, I and Bart was directing it. Okay. So and that I was, was already... like, I know I know you know, I won't feel self-conscious in front of him. And maybe like I'll be great as Scout, and then Aaron Sorkin will be like, I want to come in like ask... beyond this television show. <laughs> I was like, ask if you were, if you in the back of your head, did you think you could win him over? Yes. And, well, yes. well, I mean, I think not that I could win him over to play Scout, right. but I thought maybe in some wonderful world he would be like that girl that like came in and read that one day. Like she would be good on this show. <laughs> that it was more about that, and also right. because Scott Rudin has been producing so many yeah. exciting pieces of theater on Broadway, I was like, I would certainly love to be in that room. With him. Had you ever had anything to do with Rudin before? I had been offered a show of his that was like right after my son was born yeah. that I couldn't do and had been asked to audition for a few things. So yeah. I, but never like in the room. Right. So, right. so now you're in the room and who else is in the room? Jeff Daniels. As, as, as Atticus. Atticus Finch, yeah. Will Pullen yeah. playing Jem, Benga Akinabe playing Tom Robinson, Dakin Matthews playing the judge and Latanya Richardson Jackson as Calpurnia, and then a bunch of other geniuses. But so the core of the cast was already in assembled. Place. Yeah. And being back, I think, for the first time with Bart since Light in the Piazza, you guys got right past it? It was, yeah. And you know, Bart and I have seen each other, and I've done readings for him since Light in the Piazza, but he did say he made a point to say, like, when they told me that they were doing this, I said that they had to that they couldn't cast kids for the first. And I said, we had to do it with adults. And he said, and I said, it had to be you. And I was like, oh, I really appreciate that. That's like, nice. you know, I, I'm, I'm so glad that that worked out. But I think there was a tiny part of him that was like, this is all part of my master <laughs> <The> plan. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, I think in, he also has said, he was like, it's, you know, it's a lot of work to, yeah. to do a Broadway show with kids. And Aaron has also said, like, I was never writing for kids. I was writing for adults. So I understood that they were kids, but I just wasn't positive how we were going to get around that. Well, this is kind of a specialty of yours at this point, because you have played people quite a bit younger than you now in Spelling Bee. Glass Menagerie, Saved, Peter and the Starcatcher. Star <laughs> What's your sense of why that has been the case, and how do you 
like it? Is it something that they're, I guess each case is probably different. Yeah. It's funny. Like if you would have told me that this is what my career would have looked like, I don't know what I would have thought about that. And I think the truth is now, I think I obviously have something inside of me that I'm not totally in control of or that I, that is just like what people would say, like a gift Mm -hmm. or like something that is just a part of me that understands how to navigate this better than some people. Mm -hmm. So that's why I keep ending up here. And I think at the end of the day, I just love to work Mm -hmm. so much that I'm like, whatever the work is, I'll be there. And if it happens to be like a bunch of kids, <laughs> then I'll be there. Well, yeah. And it's not its not like that's an easy assignment either. Yeah. These are each, you know, I mean, I guess it really comes back to what we were talking about, maybe even just with high school experience where you have to have a great deal of empathy to relate to somebody who is so, you know, far in your own yeah. path, not so far. It's but, not Well, like... <laughs> I mean, kind of, especially this one where I'm like, well, she's eight. That's yeah. like all really long. Has time there ago. ever been such an age gap between a character and a performer? No, and also I feel like as I'm getting older, the characters getting are getting younger. younger. <laughs> I was like, this is going in the exact wrong direction. Oh it's God. like so. Well, with Scout, for instance, do you do something with your parents or your voice, or what's the way that you become an eight-year-old? I mean, I think there are like the obvious sort of like the pitch of the voice and the physicality like is going to inform a lot. But I also, what I've appreciated so much about this experience, which is a little bit different from the other ones that I've had, is that I do feel like Scout Finch in this play is both an adult and a child, like an adult looking back on this story and trying to tease out the events of that summer. Mm -hmm. And then also, as you know, she's looking back on it, finding herself inside of the story. And in a weird way, especially when we were first starting, I felt more secure about the kids stuff that I was like, this just feels, for whatever reason, like I know what to do. Mm-hmm. And then the parts where I felt like I wanted to give a little tip of the hat to Harper Lee or to like all of us as grown ups revisiting this text, that responsibility felt somewhat larger or mm-hmm. that I wasn't, and maybe it was because there was no sort of framework for what that should look like. Right, because because that's the big difference between this and prior stuff. I mean, did you go back to the book or to the movie before this? I did go back to the book. And I went back to a lot of writing about the South in 1934. And I went back to Monroeville, Alabama, where Harper Lee was born. You took a trip down there. Yeah, just to sort of check out, like— what that place was because it's such a character in the book like mm-hmm. that town of Maycomb which is based on yeah. her her childhood town of Monroeville where she and Truman Capote grew up next door to each other crazy. and for whom Dill Charles Baker Harris yeah. is, is based I did not revisit the movie because of Mary Badham's performance which I think I can even still say is the quintessential performance of Scout Finch. And I was like, I'll just be in some sort of shame spiral if I go back. Like, I cannot do what she does. I still can, like, Well, it did help that she was eight. The actual age. Um, And also, I think the Scout in the movie is very different from the Scout in the play. And in a a nice way that even though there will always be a part of me that is trying to live up to her performance, they're very, very different characters. You also did something with your accent, right? Yes. That and that was honestly one of the biggest parts of going to Monroeville was to 
see generationally, like how do the older people in this town talk and how do the younger people in this there town talk? There is a difference. There is a big difference. And in some ways, I mean, it wasn't the older generation has a much their accent is a lot thicker and the younger people, it was like as they got younger, the accent sort of got a little less intense. But I feel like I sort of went to Monroeville in hopes of like finding out some secret information about Harper Lee and her experience of writing the book, which of course none of that (laughs) came to pass. But I do think that the character of the town and of the people in it was hugely helpful for my imagination, yeah. that it wasn't something that I could have accessed, either, even from the, the movie. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah. Is there a scene in the play that you find the most challenging? It's changed a little bit. I think if you would ask me this question, like when we started doing the play, I would have said the first five minutes of the play. Can you just set the scene a little bit? Yeah. So I think it, it has a lot to do with my own expectations that what I expected the play to start with was like the porch or that tree and this beautiful little town. And instead it starts in an abandoned warehouse with my character asking a question, holding a newspaper about the facts of this summer in 1934 and and the newspaper saying that Bob Buell fell on his knife and that that somehow doesn't seem to add up. And I could not understand why we were starting the play that way. I was like, I don't, I don't understand why this question is that important. I think it's, destabilizing for the audience to like engage with this question. So I don't even know if everybody knows who Bobby Bob, right. is. Right. And of course, like I did, I fought it like almost the entire rehearsal process. And then we did the first preview and I was like, God damn it, Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> That's why you're the genius and why I'm here just <laughs> acting. But I was like, of course he did it that way because I do think so many people have such a strong attachment to the novel and to the movie and feel a lot of ownership and and care about the way that it is put forth. And I think in those first five minutes, it tells the audience, I think it does, it it, it teaches the audience how to watch the play. And it says like, this is a different version from what, you know, all of the the elements are still here, but we're gonna tell the story a little bit differently. So you said that was the one that originally gave you the pause. What what would be the one one today that you- because we should say you're now seven months into this, yeah. so I guess things do change. Yeah, they really do. You know what's hardest now is watching all of the testimony because I, I'm not an active participant in it. And I think there is a part of me that feels like as an actor, you still have to be present. And because I've heard people say, like, we watch the kids throughout the play watching what's yeah. happening. And so I cannot be just completely checked out. But remaining inside of the story, even though it's like my 230th time hearing it, is like a real, I feel like it's like meditation a little bit where where they say like when you're meditating, like you don't judge the thoughts, you just like let them come in and you try to let them go out and you try to like reconnect to the breath that like on some level, I'm like trying to do that in the scene where it's like if the other thoughts come in, it's fine. But like try to like keep going back inside. Well, I'm glad you're talking about this, though, because I am not an actor. I've never been an actor. And I always am amazed when I hear people say, I mean, I think what was your longest run? It was like a year and a half with the original um, Spelling Spelling Bee. Yeah. Even if it's the greatest piece of material ever, I would think that doing something eight times a week for that long to some extent, is going to drive you crazy. Now, I've, t- I've heard from a lot of 
actors who say, well, no, because every single one of them is different and whatever. But to some extent, it's— 100%. Right? It is. It requires so much discipline. And I think in a good way, Benga, actually, who plays Tom Robinson, and it's his Broadway debut. We were talking at the beginning of the process, and I realized, like, part of my frustration in doing a long run is that towards the beginning of the process, there are a few performances where you're like, oh, this is what it should be. And then, of course, over time, it either gets better or then you can't get back to that performance. Mm -hmm. And I think in the past, I've been, like, chasing a performance that happened early on in the run and trying to get myself back there when in fact it's like you have to let all of that go. And again, it's like, it sounds so sort of (laughs) cheesy or or cliched, but like really your only job is to be present. Mm -hmm. And what what has been very satisfying about this run is that I do think because Bart was able to create a foundation that is as strong as it is, that if the emotions or if I don't feel like located in the scene in the way that I used to, if I can task myself with just staying inside of it, then the emotion sometimes shows up somewhere else. Or if it doesn't show up, it's okay. And I think being all right with that is definitely like the next step that I've, I've never experienced in the long run before. But it is really hard to do eight shows a week. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I mean, what would be the ideal number per week? I think five. Five? Yeah. Which would you lose? I would lose the matinees and maybe have a two-day weekend. Yeah. That doesn't seem that unreasonable, no. but uh, I guess you got to keep the lights on. Get so. those tickets <laughs> yes. sold. Last few things are, I believe you had a special visitor to the show. I mean, I'm sure there have been quite a few because this has been the ticket, but um, who maybe meant the most to you? Oh my gosh, that's like picking your favorite child because if Sonia Sotomayor and <laughs> Hillary Rodham Clinton and Michelle Obama come and see your show, you don't pick oh, favorites. Oh, that's awesome. Um, well, how about on a on a different level? I believe Mary Batum. Yes. So this is the original Scout. She was if she was like eight in nineteen sixty two. You guys, she's not that old. She's not that old still. I yeah. Like, I said to someone, I was like, "Is she elderly?" And they were like. No, she's like 60-something. Right. I was like, oh, okay. So, uh, and so, she yeah. was, I was really nervous you for that. You knew she was in the house Yes, tonight. I was given a heads up. and But I did feel very nervous performing for her because I felt like not only did I want her to think <laughs> that I was good, but I wanted, I, I imagined that it would be a complex experience to watch this thing that she is so tied to that, as we were just talking about, is very different from the thing that she was a part of. Right. And I just felt like, this is not generous, but I assumed when she came back that it would be all about her and her experience mm-hmm. with the movie and her experience since she was a part of it. And she could not have been more generous. And it was all about Harper Lee. Everything was about the importance of the book and how she felt like this production was like the next step of keeping this story inside of our cultural canon and a part of our like American story, right. which I thought was pretty incredible yeah. for her to be able to approach an experience like that. So take me back, I guess, maybe now like three or four weeks ago, you guys have something that you've you've experienced a few times before where Tony nominations morning, you know, it's going to be all kinds of different emotions, I would guess. You pick up number four, Jeff's nominated, a whole bunch of people 
there's some higher points and lower points of the morning, I'm sure. But like, what was that morning like for you? Well, I think because this season is so filled with so many incredible plays that I was recognized, even though it was the fourth time around, it felt like inside of this season, this is very, very special. And because of the people who were left out or the shows that were left out, it felt even more significant that, and that I felt particularly tied to Gideon and Glick and Will Poland because, and that I really felt like I, that my, I wish that all three of us could have been nominated because truly our performances don't exist without the other two. That like we are such a unit in the show and the three of us have worked so hard together and I love both of them so much. But it was, you know, I felt so proud that the show got as many nominations as it did, but I also was aware, it's like one thing to be a hit in a season that's (laughs) not that great and it's another thing to be a hit in a season that is filled with really wonderful artists. And that was the sort of overwhelming sense I got this year. So last question, I guess, you know, having just taken this walk back through memory lane, you know, at this point in your career, how do you feel about, I mean, you've packed a lot into, I guess, what is it, 17 years since the first, (laughs) since the first Broadway performance, Uh I think, obviously, going very strong. What are you proudest of? What do you still most hope to achieve? Oh my gosh. I I think the fact that I have been able to to keep working on projects in the theater that are meaningful to me feels like a huge deal, particularly because I'm not even sure I made that happen. That that I I don't know that I've curated this career for my (laughs) life necessarily, but that I've been drawn to projects or projects have been drawn to me that have been meaningful. I also think it's like so interesting that you started this interview asking about my parents and what they did, because this project, more than almost anything I've been a part of, feels so tied to them and to my roots in Detroit that it's like I feel enormously proud of that. And I think, you know, going forward, what I would wish for is obviously to keep getting these opportunities in the theater and also to start having my brain used in the television and film world to, like, figure out, like, what that looks like. So you do want to do want to do more of that? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think especially now where there is so much film and television yeah. that is exciting to me and that these shows that are sort of female driven and culturally relevant like that, if I was able to like, if that could be the next project, that would be the dream and something on television. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Thanks very much for tuning into Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.